in John's Gospel. Yesterday we'd explored the source and the reality of being um, rooted in Christ. We need to pick that up again today and understand what it means to be in Him and how that changes the way we think and the way we behave. Um, I want to show you a little clip from the Iron Lady first. Oh, it's done it again. To shape who we think we are far too much, particularly in um, the last 20 or 30 years, our feelings and our emotions in the church, as important as they are, have almost become the determining factor for us in how we understand ourselves. And today, as we look at this question of being in John's, God, in John's general epistle, I want us to really fundamentally seek to understand this one simple thing, that in a mysterious, liberating, releasing, life-giving, world-changing, church-transforming way, we are present to God in Christ, and Christ is present to the world in us. That's the simple theological and spiritual reality that I want us to explore. Write that down, that we are present to God in Christ, and that Christ is present to the world in us. Now, we're going to look at that in various different ways, but that then means that in our heads, we have got to get right the understanding of who we are. Our being in Christ changes everything. So often, we can end up thinking, well, God must be far away today because I don't feel Him, or God doesn't care for me because I don't feel Him, or God isn't here because I don't sense Him. But there's a fundamental reality of Christian faith which John picks up, and that is we are not determined by what we feel, we are determined by what we believe. And somehow, we have to get into our heads and our hearts the reality of who we are before God and how that shapes the way we think and the way we live. That means that we have got to be honest and true about ourselves. And in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, that is exactly what the uh, apostle is picking up. I want to read it again with you so that you understand it. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. This is the message he has given to us to announce to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not living in the truth. But if we are living in the light of God's presence, just as Christ is, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from every sin. If we say we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth. But if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from every wrong. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. In chapter two, he goes on and says, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if you do, there is someone to plead for you before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who pleases God completely. 
He is the sacrifice for our sins. He takes away not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. And how can we be sure that we belong to him? By obeying his commandments. If someone says, I belong to God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and doesn't live by the truth. But those who obey God's word really do love him. That is the way to know whether or not we live in him. Those who live, say they live in God, should live their lives as Christ did. This is an incredibly important message for us to understand as we explore being in Christ and being in the world. We have often allowed ourselves to, to um, fall into, and I want you to understand that I'm a pastor, okay? It's my highest calling and my greatest delight. I will die, I think, pastoring churches if they don't kill me first. <laughs> I have asked God that I, to give me the grace to preach a sermon on my 100th birthday, and then he can do what he likes. It's up to him whether he answers that or not. But here's the thing. As a pastor, you want to encourage people in their faith. John was a pastor. You want people to know just how precious they are to God. It, it, it's like a, a, a Blackpool rock. If you cut it in two, it would say Blackpool in the middle. If you cut a pastor in two, I think it should say you want people to understand who they are in God and God's purpose for their lives. John wants them to understand that, but he doesn't want to lull them into a false sense of security. We have fallen into the trap of thinking, well, I say I'm a Christian, therefore I am a Christian. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that when you confess Christ with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But biblical belief translates into godly behavior. And godly behavior is evidence of salvation. And if you are walking with someone, and this is where I don't want you to misunderstand me, someone keeps saying they're a Christian, including me, but their behavior never changes. As a pastor, I have to help them to answer the question and be honest to themselves. Are you truly converted? That's what John is arguing here. True conversion leads to changed behavior. Being born again leads to the production of fruit in our lives. And ladies and gentlemen, we are in a church culture where that's almost unpopular. The fact that the room is so quiet tells me that some of you are struggling with that. I'm not saying that your works and what you do will save you. Never. The Bible is very clear about that. In Ephesians chapter 2, it is abundantly clear that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, in case any of us boasts. But the Bible is also clear in James chapter 1 and chapter 2, that when we are converted, our lives are changed. John the Baptist said to those that were listening to him, bring forth fruit that demonstrates your repentance. Now, I know, I'm assuming, that everybody in this room, or almost everybody in this room, is a follower of Jesus. You may not be. But I'm going to ask you a question which is incredibly important. Are you changing? When was the last time you discovered something about God for the first time? 
Are you becoming more like Jesus? In my church family, we have a simple adage. My congregation hear me saying it all the time. I want to encourage people to take one more step toward Christ. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter where they are. It doesn't matter how mature they think they are. We are all called to take one more step. And in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 through to 1 John chapter 2, the section that we've just read, the Apostle John is confronting three lies. I'll come back to them later. But those lies are all about sin and awareness of sin. He's saying some people are claiming that sin does not break their fellowship with God. It does. Some people are claiming that they are not, they do not sin. They are wrong. And some people are claiming that if they do sin, this is a deeply theological phrase, they're snookered. <laughs> they're wrong too. Do you see what he does? And he does it again and again through this letter. He confronts the people in Ephesus with the truth. And the truth is sin breaks our fellowship with God. The truth is that many of us, all of us at times sin. And the truth is there's still hope. Those three fundamental realities are vitally important if we are to understand what it means to be present to God. We've got to allow ourselves the freedom to understand that when God is working in us, we are changed. And here's basically what John says in these verses. When you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. And that advocate is the Lord Jesus Christ. And his blood will cleanse you and renew you and forgive you and wash you. So don't believe that because you sin, you are a lost cause. Don't pretend that you don't sin. Instead, recognize that every time you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Now, here's one of the problems that much of our theology has created for us. We then think that every day we have to go through every single thing that we have done wrong, and we have to work it out. And if we don't mention it to God, he won't forgive us. Bunk him. That's not true. And when Martin Luther led the beginning of the Reformation, it was exactly that thought that led him to the point of grace. Here's what happened for him. He went to Rome, and on his knees, he climbed up the steps outside St. Peter's, trying to remember every sin that he had ever committed. And he couldn't remember, and then he thought, well, that's me snookered. So he went home. His knees were bleeding. He was so anxious, he was climbing up steps on his knees, and blood was coming out of them. I'm gonna to have to get up, although I have a bad neck for some reason which I got last night. So all chiropractors, please make a line toward the front. <laughs> but only if you're a qualified chiropractor. I don't want people pressing my neck that are going to make it worse. He wakes his way back home to the place where he lived, which is Wittenberg. And he gets caught in a storm. And here was his dilemma. He was saying, God, I can't remember every sin that I've committed. I'm, and therefore, I'm, I'm lost. According to the spirituality that I have, I'm deeply embedded and I don't know a way out. He gets caught in a storm on the way back to Wittenberg and he discovers grace. And he realizes that when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, he died once and for all, for all of our sins. Sins past, sins present, and sins future. 
And he realizes that he has been redeemed by the blood of Christ and the blood of Christ alone. And from that moment, his life was changed, although his wife continued to beat him. And he discovered something. He discovered that when we are forgiven, we are forgiven. Here's what happens when we get caught in sin and think we're trapped. The devil makes us think we're not good enough. Confession is agreeing with God. It's saying the same thing as God says about us. It's declaring over ourselves that we are cleansed and renewed and forgiven. It's coming before God each day and saying to him, I want to see myself as you see me. I want everything that would separate from me from you to be dealt with. I don't want anything to get in the way. I don't want to be determined by what the mistakes that I've made today or the errors that I've fallen into. I need to be embedded in the lifeline that is the blood of Christ. So I choose to remain in this place and agree with what you say over me, that I am forgiven, that I am renewed, that I am loved, that I am redeemed by the blood of Christ. And of course, when we get things wrong and he brings them to our remembrance, we lay them out before him and we ask him to cleanse us from them, to teach us the lesson of them. But this cleansing always goes back to the cross. God hasn't forgiven you just up until today, and then he'll do it again tomorrow if you're a good boy or a good girl. God has forgiven every sin in Jesus. We've got to understand what it means to be present to him. And you see, ladies and gentlemen, the issue is this. If we think that sin is somehow insurmountable, we'll be embarrassed about coming to him. If we think that we have not sinned, we'll be arrogant and think we don't need to come to him. So John is saying both of those are lies. Sin is not insurmountable and you are not perfect, but God is your advocate in Christ. Do you see? It's so important that we understand that. There are two things that that leads to. There are two fundamental challenges that we have. Let me show you what they are. The first is a lack of sin consciousness. That's what's picked up in 1 John 1, verses five to nine. The second is being obsessed with sin, which is picked up in 1 John chapter three, verses one to 10. Why don't you turn to that for a moment and we'll just read it together. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is from the English Standard Version. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, 
it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The two big challenges for us are either to be sin um, obsessed or to be, have a lack of sin consciousness. And we've got to deal with both. And this is one of the great dangers in the church today, in this church in Britain, the church that we are part of. We're turning the gospel into an invitation, which means you are included. Count yourself in. You're in. Nothing needs to change. Nothing needs to alter. Your behavior can be what it likes. Your thoughts can be what they like. You can do what you like, with you like, where you like, whom, how you like, whenever you like. And it's not true. It isn't true. When we are brought into Christ, we are changed. And we have to hold on to this reality that if we are completely unaware of the call in the cross to be changed, to be transformed, to be renewed, then we will create a church which is shaped by society instead of a church that is shaping society. We aren't called just to look like the rest of the world. We'll pick that up later. We're called to look like Jesus. We're called to be present in Christ to God and present to the world that Christ might see, that the world might see Christ. We've got to hold on to this, folks. It's such an important issue and it's blighting us. We're becoming weaker and weaker and weaker at articulating the idea that God changes us and makes us holy, that God challenges our behavior. I can't see a single instance in the New Testament. Not a single instance in the New Testament of God saying, nothing ever needs to change in your life. God accepts us where we are, absolutely. Thank God, amen? He loves us right where we are. He comes to us. He does detours to get to the woman at the well. He'll go out of his way to reach us. He sits and kneels with the woman taken in adultery. But when he meets us, he accepts us, and then he begins the work of change. And the work of change is deeply embedded in our lives. Our being changes. We've got to hold on to that. There are, by the way, three accounts of God writing physically himself in the, new, in the, old, in the Bible. The first account of God writing in the Bible is when he wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger. Do you remember? The second account, anybody remember the second account of God writing in scripture? The writing on the wall, Daniel. In the book of Daniel, when God wrote with his own finger on the wall, mene, mene, tekel, you Pharisee, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. The third time that God is recorded as writing himself is when Jesus knelt in the dirt beside the woman taken in adultery and wrote in the sand. I wonder what he wrote. I can't wait to ask him. Did he write a heart? Did he write the commandments? Did he write her name? We don't know what he wrote, but we know what he said. Woman, where are your accusers? And she said, they're gone. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He writes and gives the law. He writes and weighs us against the law. And then he writes and releases us 
from the punishment of the law, but encourages us to go and sin no more. When we are in Christ, our life and our behavior begins to change. What's the solution to these two big mistakes that we make? We either become sin-obsessed or we have a lack of sin consciousness. The solution is that we need an advocate. We need someone who hasn't sinned, yes? We need someone who is completely aware of the consequences of sin. We need someone who is able to deal with the issue. We need someone who's able to take away the stain that's on our hearts. We need someone that can't just do it once, but will keep doing it and will continue to hold us so that we are free and cleansed and pure, which is exactly what John says in 1 John 1, 5 through to the halfway through chapter 2. He says the solution is Jesus. The solution is the power of the blood. The solution is the sacrifice. The solution is your advocate. Who else is called an advocate in the New Testament? The Holy Spirit. And Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as someone just like him. There are two Greek words for the same or another. One is, um, this is another chair. That red chair that Peter's sitting on is one chair. This is another chair. The other word for another would mean that Peter is sitting in a red chair and beside him there is another chair which means exactly the same, same in substance, same in character, same in heart, same in behavior, same in attitude. That's the word that Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit. If we wanna know what God is like, we see him in Jesus. If we wanna know how he will handle our sin, if we wanna know how the Holy Spirit will work in our lives, we look at the way Jesus dealt with people who were sinners. He will do exactly the same thing. What did Jesus do? He accepted them, he challenged them, he cleansed them, and then he empowered them. He gave them the grace to live differently. And that's what God does with us through our advocate, Jesus Christ. We have to, we simply have to hold on to that. He is our advocate. What is Jesus Christ doing now? Standing in glory, interceding for us. Hallelujah. By the way, can I just make a little bit of an excursus, a detour into something here? Well, I'm going to anyway, so I don't care what you think. <laughs> I am with you. I believe many of you will, like me, have made a journey around the idea of heaven, and you will be celebrating that heaven is an, is an additional dimension. It's not. Um, it's not simply a place somewhere else. Heaven is a reality where the kingdom of God reigns. We're not going to spend eternity in some dislocated place on another planet. We're going to spend it here. But, there's always a but with an Irishman, isn't there? But, where is Jesus now? The physical resurrected Jesus is somewhere. He still has a body. He's the firstborn from amongst the dead. He's the only one ever to be given a resurrection body. Lazarus was resurrected and died again. Ja Jairus' daughter was resurrected and died again. The widow at Nain's son was resurrected and died again. Jesus was resurrected and will never die again. He has a physical body and he is somewhere at this moment. He physically ascended from the earth in Acts chapter one. And when he was going, he said, Northern Ireland version, see you later. He's coming back. So let's be careful in our rush to create the idea that heaven is just something that's going to transform us, that we also remember the balance of scripture. 
which is the physical Jesus is somewhere now, and what is he doing? Praying for you. Wow. Praying for me, praying that I will finish this race well. I think God answers that prayer, don't you? I don't think God ever says no to Jesus. I don't think his father ever looks at him and says, nope, nope. The closest you get to it is in the garden. And even then it's not a no, it's a Jesus being strengthened to do what he's called to do. So we need to remember that we have this advocate, let it put a bit of steel in your bones. Let it put a little bit of hope in your heart. I often have conversations with people who are Christians and they'll say something like this, I know that God has loved me, I know that God has accepted me, but I don't think he's very happy with me. Listen, brother, listen, sister. Let this dip into your heart and be planted like a seed of hope. God doesn't only love you, he likes you. He likes spending time with you. He enjoys your company. He doesn't listen to you as you come to him and say, oh no, not him again. He doesn't look and say, oh no, not her again, for goodness sake. He likes you. He enjoys being with you. How do I know? Scripture tells us all the way through that we are adopted. He chose to love us. He chose to accept us. He chose to pull us into his family. We're given all the rights of a child. That is exciting, is it not? The great thing about John is he captures it so beautifully in 1 John chapter three. I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. Beloved, now are we the children of God and that is what we are. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but when we see him, we shall be like him. I'm not gonna be acceptable to God, I'm acceptable to God today. I'm not going to be someone who passes a test. Jesus has passed the test for me. I'm loved now. I'm accepted now. I am cherished now, and I always will be. That's the solution to some of this challenge. Now, what I wanna do is go back to this question of our inner life that I looked at yesterday, and, and I want to ground being in Christ um, using the little diagram behind me. I wanna make a suggestion to you. Too often, we run to being in community with people, but we've forgotten that before we can stand before the world, we must kneel before the Father. We have to discover our identity in Christ, and that will shape the way we behave as a church, and that will shape the way we behave in community. Does that make sense? So I want to explore how John does that. And you will be really interested to know this. There are several examples. I'm going to show you two. Several examples in John's uh, letter where he does exactly this. He starts with Jesus all the time. Who Jesus is and how that shapes us. And then how that will shape the church. And then how the church can confront the world. Here's the first example, and you'll probably want to look at some of these verses in your Bible with me. Who Christ is in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. We're told there that he is the one who forgives us of our sin. 
He's the one that will help us sort out the stuff in our head that's the wrong way round. He'll cleanse us, he'll renew us, he'll forgive us. He, the source, is doing a work in us so that we might be whom he's called us to be. But then um, John picks that up in the first seven verses of chapter two. And he says, when you understand who Jesus is, and when you understand who you are, it changes the way you think about yourself. Verses one to seven of chapter two tell us a different story about ourselves. But that then means that we change the way we behave as a community of faith. In 1 John chapter two, verses seven to 14, having dealt with the individual in the first seven verses, the apostle John goes on to say, therefore you can love one another. When you are at peace with who you are, when you know who you are in Christ, you love one another in the church. You care for one another in the church. You have a different view of one another in the church. This is no different to what Jesus said. When you are forgiven, you will forgive. It's no different to the great commandment in Matthew chapter 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's the same pattern throughout scripture. And when we've got it right as a church, when we understand who Christ is and how that changes us, and that enables us to change the way we treat one another in the church, then our attitude to the world will change. We'll not be enticed by it anymore. We'll not be drawn into it anymore. We'll not chase after its pleasures and its um, temptations and what John describes as its lusts anymore because we're content. Do you remember what Paul said to the young pastor Timothy? Godliness with contentment is great gain. And when we've got our attitude right to the world, then we're able to understand what happens when the world makes claims that aren't true because we're confident of who we are in Christ. That's the first example, but he does it several times. Here's the second. In chapter two, verses 29 to 31, he starts again with who Jesus is. Then he goes in chapter three and says, this is what that means for us. Because of who Christ is, we can identify ourselves as children of God. And we know that he will finish the work that he has begun in us. And because we know that, in verses 11 to 17, we as a church will behave differently with each other. Because we'll be patient with each other. We'll love one another. We'll support one another. We'll care for one another. We'll maybe look after children so some of you in the chalets can come and join us. Or maybe we'll all come to one chalet. Should I pick a number? <laughs> and have 2,000 people just come to the chalet. What do you think, Peter? Would that be a good idea? Do you have enough non-alcoholic grape juice for that F-16? <laughs> and when we understand how we behave as a community of faith, we understand what it means again in verses 18 to 24 of chapter three for our attitude to the world and then we're able to deal with the world's claims. You see, I said yesterday, I mentioned the circular idea constantly. John is starting here, he starts with Christ, works it out in us, works it out in the church, works it out in the world, gives us steel to respond. Starts with Christ, us, church, world, Christ, us, church, world. He does it again and again and again, which is why I've made the choice to go through this the way I'm going through it now. So how does that all translate for us? Then it gives us the grace to connect the church community being good news. When we understand who we are, how we exist 
and we'll come back to this in a moment, our being in Christ, then we have the confidence to be Christ to the world. And here's the challenge, whether we like it or not, God has chosen the church to be the central vehicle of the gospel in the world. What a risk. I get a bit fed up when I hear people dissing the local church. We're not perfect. Certainly the one I'm in isn't perfect because I'm in it. But we are the bride. And pastor, elder, deacon, warden, sidesman, sideswoman, bishop, presbyter, cardinal, I don't think there'll be one of those here today. Thank you for loving the church. I love the church. I love the local church. I believe it is the center of God's purposes and plans. And I am really, really, really tired of hearing people dismiss her, make fun of her, laugh at her, mock her, make her sound as if she is not important. She is a jeweled bride in the eyes of Jesus. And I am privileged, do you know what? I wouldn't stoop to be prime minister. To be the pastor of a local church is the greatest gift and blessing in my life. Why? Because God has called me to it. And I believe, I look out in my church congregation on Sunday mornings and sometimes our services are a bit boring. Sometimes they're particularly boring when I'm preaching. Sometimes, yes! Sometimes they're a bit dull. Sometimes we have great expectations that God is gonna do a whole load of stuff and he doesn't do it. And sometimes we think he's not gonna do anything and he does a whole load of stuff. But I look out at people and I see men and women who have given 60 or 70 years or six weeks or six months and they've given and they've prayed and they've loved and they've served and they've volunteered and they've turned up and they've been in house groups and they've served their neighbors and they've prayed for their families and they've walked their streets. Sometimes when you hear people from larger platforms, all you ever hear is why we get it wrong. We do get it right too. We are a bride. My favorite quote about the church is the quote that comes from St. Augustine. You've heard it before if you've been at Spring Harvest for any number of years, because I've used it many times. Here's what he said, the church is a whore, but she is still my mother. I think our attitude should be a little bit like the uh, Noah's children in the ark a lovely picture of the church. They had two options. Once they went in, there was one door in and one door out, that was it. And once in the ark, they had two options. They could stink or they could sink. <laughs> you say to me, well, our local church is full of hypocrites. Well, you go along, one more will make no difference whatsoever. <laughs> Sometimes we have this view of the church and what we do is this we compare our best to their worst why don't you reverse that and compare your worst to their best church is a beautiful thing and God has called us to be part of it dear friends John says in 1 John chapter 2 verse 7 I am not writing a new commandment for it to you for it is an old one you have always had right from the beginning. This commandment to love one another 
is the same message that you heard before, yet it is also new. This commandment is true in Christ, and it is true amongst you, because the darkness is disappearing, and the true light is already shining. If anyone says, I am living in the light, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves other Christians is living in the light and does not cause anyone to stumble. Anyone who hates a Christian brother or sister is living and walking in darkness. Such a person is lost, having been blinded by the darkness. We have got to learn what it means to be one body. Years ago, I read a book by an American author called Max Licado, and there's a, one little line in it which really captured my imagination, and it still does. He said, if Jesus Christ calls somebody brother or sister, and if God the Father calls someone son or daughter, how dare I call them anything else? Too often, we have defined other people's spirituality or whether they are in or out of the kingdom by whether they agree with us or not. What a dangerous thing to do. I once had a conversation with a man who said to me, I'm leaving your church. And I said, why are you doing that? Because you have prayers that you write out and I don't like them. We practice something in Gold Hill called Compline. It's night prayer. Four times a year, we have a week of prayers that we write. I often write them. And uh, we'll pray together with a candle burning and teze music or chanting. Beautiful. We also have really rocking services. It's not like we're always that. He said, the problem is you're getting too Catholic for me. He said, you like candles. Candles are sin. And he went on to a whole list of things that I was doing wrong. I, I tell you, it would take a week to tell you. And in the end, I'll change his name to Peter. <laughs> in the end, I listened to this for about two hours. And I said, Peter, I think you probably do need to find another church. And I said it with a broken heart. And he said, you can't make me leave. I said, then don't leave. He said, I'll leave if I want to. I said, but you've just said that I'm making you leave. Well, you're not going to make me leave. I said, well, then don't leave. No, I'm leaving. I went on for about 15 minutes. It was ridiculous. But in the end, I said, look, here's why I think you need to find another church. Because what you want us to be is this tight, narrow, confined, judgmental, finger-pointing, angry, right-wing group of people who hate everybody else. We're never going to be that. Not on my watch. As long as I pastor this church, we will treat people with respect. We will recognize the dignity of human beings. We will call people brothers and sisters if Christ has called them brothers and sisters. And yes, that includes some of the men and women in the Catholic Church 400 yards from us. We will pray, we will walk, we will take our place alongside other men and women who have laid down their lives to follow Christ, whether they're Anglicans or Baptists or Catholics or Pentecostals or white or black or strong or weak. And I said to him, my brother, you will end up in a fellowship of one. And then there'll be something to disagree with. <laughs> We've got to learn what it is to love one another. To be present to God. 
and to be present with one another. But don't mistake loving one another for never disagreeing. I'm Irish. I'm the youngest of five. And in our house when I was growing up, there was either a riot or a revival. <laughs> Almost every night would be sitting and somebody would say something. My big brother Colin would say something and my next big brother Edward would say, oh, I don't agree with that. And boom, off we'd go. My father, who's now dead, was um, somewhere, he was a, a, one of the founding and uh, important part of the Northern Ireland Labour Party. And he was politically, oh my goodness. He'd come, in fact, um, my wife did something for me that my mum did for my dad. My dad would watch the news, particularly in certain eras of political history in Britain. And he would shout and swear at the television. Because uh, none of my family are Christians, only me. My mum is now. She became a Christian last August after 27 years of praying. God is not allowed to take another 27 years for the rest of the family, I have to tell you. But he used to sit in front of the TV and he'd shout at it, oh, get that man off, get that woman off. My mother bought him a rubber brick. And she said, Jack, she said to him, Jackie, just throw the brick at the TV. It's better than listening to you shouting every night at it. So our, our house was either a riot or a revival. We need to learn the art of being disagreeable. I'm a disagreeable Christian. I maintain the right to disagree with you. Don't call me a bigot because of that. Don't tell me that I'm being unloving. Don't tell me that I'm being ungracious. Don't tell me that I'm being unkind. Don't be so intolerant. We've created a tolerance of an, an intolerance of tolerance and a tolerance of intolerance. We somehow have to learn to say, I disagree with you. I disagree with your view. I disagree with what you're saying. Doesn't mean I don't love you, it just means I disagree. Somebody said to me recently because of something that I'd written around equal marriage on which I have a conservative theological view. I think it's wrong, I won't marry somebody in a same-sex relationship. Somebody said to me, the problem with you is you're making this debate confusing, why don't you just shut up? <laughs> and I said, with the greatest respect, you choose where you stand I have sought to study scripture. This is what I think. I might be wrong and you might be right, but at least I have the right to ask the question, don't I? We have to learn what it means to love one another, but also to disagree with one another, to be able to have a debate. We need to conduct ourselves differently instead of always looking the same. What could be worse? Imagine, how many people are in this room? About 1,500, 1,600, maybe, maybe 2,000? What could be worse than a church with 2,000 people who look just like me? Two thousand people just like you might be worse. <laughs> we've got to learn to love one another. But we've got to learn to be together honestly and with integrity. And that then gives us the grace. That then gives us the strength to be good news in the wider world. In one John chapter two, verses fifteen, all the way through to the end, we're given this amazing series of words. I want to pick up just a few of them to help you to understand what I'm trying to say. I want to read verses 15 to 17. Stop loving this evil world and all that it offers you. For when you love the world, 
you show that you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only the lust for physical pleasure, the lust for everything we see, and pride in our possessions. These are not from the Father, they are from this evil world, and this world is fading away, along with everything it craves. But if you do the will of God, you will live forever. You see what he's doing? He starts with Jesus, focuses in on the individual, helps them understand their place in the church, the role of the body of Christ. And then he says, be careful about your engagement with society, with the world. I don't have time to go into it, but John uses the word cosmos in different contexts and the word bios here. There are three Greek words for world, geos, bios, and cosmos. I'll let you spell them out. Isn't it great to have, isn't it great to have more than one preacher? Let's give them a round of applause. But fundamentally, what he's doing here is saying we need a different core. Our being in the world is shaped not by the world's priorities and the world's values, but by Jesus' values. Right at the end of this book, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle John says, Dear children, little ones, keep yourselves from idols. Run away from those things that are trying to take your heart. What is an idol? An idol is anything that is more important to you than God. Some of our children have become idols. Some of our marriages have become idols. We tell single people that they can be complete in Christ and then live as if we're not complete without a husband or a wife. Some of our buildings have become idols. Some of our denominational distinctives have become idols. What is our idol? What are the idols that shape us and confront us? What are the idols that we stand against that we need to be aware of? 1 John chapter 5, 21 challenges us. The message puts it this way. Dear children, be on the guard against clever facsimiles. What are the idols in your culture, in your world, in your life? If you don't identify the idol in your life, you'll end up looking like it. We end up looking like the thing that we worship. If we worship Jesus, we'll end up looking like him. If we worship faith, we'll only ever talk about faith. Faith. <laughs> if we worship money, our whole lives revolve around money. I think John, in this passage, identifies a few of the idols from which his culture, the church that he's writing to in Ephesus, has to run. They're identified in verses 16, really, verse 16 and perhaps verse 17. For the world offers only the lust for physical pleasure. That's hedonism. The desire to be fulfilled, the desire to be happy, the desire to just enjoy pleasure all the time. The lust for everything we see is materialism. That's in verse 16b. The NIV translated as the lusts of his eyes. The lust of individualism and consumerism, pride in our possessions. The boasting of what he has and does, the NIV says. And then he goes on to talk about antichrists. 
People who put themselves in the place of Christ, that's what the word means, antichrist. He points to one great figure at the end of time, but he also mentions lots of little antichrists, people or systems or structures that put themselves in the place of Jesus. Here are the idols that John identified 2,000 years ago. Hedonism, individualism, materialism, consumerism, and religious structures and other people who put themselves in the place of Christ. Brothers and sisters, those are the idols of our age. We still have to abandon and turn away from and refuse hedonism. The church isn't an entertainment factory. People will realize soon enough that TV is better. Materialism, individualism, consumerism, other religions, as unpopular as it might be, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is not a source, he is the source. We don't all have different words for the same God. Allah and Yahweh are not the same person. As unpopular as it might make me be today, let me say to you, and I say it with gentleness, but with sincerity, I believe that Islam is fundamentally a demonic religion that is seeking to destroy men and women. And that we somehow have to learn what it means to stand for Christ. I didn't say that Muslims were demonic. But every other religion points to a different God. The very fact that we're not even sure about that anymore tells me how far we need to travel in trying to identify truth again. How can we be in the world if we are not first present to Christ in all of his grace and all of his love? And that leads me to this question. What are the idols that you are facing? How do you deal with them? Are there idols in your church? Are there idols in your life that no one else can see? These are the five that I've just mentioned. Are there others that you need to confront and think about? Are there ways in which you have allowed them to shape your identity rather than allowing Christ to shape your identity? How we relate to the world and the culture around us is so important. We have to understand first who we are in Christ, then who we are as individuals, then who we are as the church, and then we can engage with the world. And here's one of the radical things that the Apostle John says in chapter three and at the end of chapter two. He says, the truth has been placed in you. The Holy Spirit has been placed in you. I think too often we have ended up making um, church hierarchies and structures um, uh, perpendicular rather than horizontal. Imagine for a minute that we are all a snooker table or that you're a snooker ball. You can decide, turn to the person beside you and tell them whether you wanna be red, yellow, blue, brown, pink, black, white, whatever, or green. I'm trying to remember the Dennis uh, Taylor song, pot the red and screw back for the yellow, green, brown, blue, pink and black. Imagine for a minute, that shows my age, doesn't it? Imagine for a minute that we are all snooker balls, okay? On a snooker table. Take the value off the balls. There are more reds than there are black, green, yellow, brown, pink, black, white, whatever. What do they all hold in common? They're round. <laughs> Thank you very much. They're all the same distance from the floor.
so are we. Whether you're called vicar, reverend, father, pope, archbishop, prince, duke, baron, baroness, or just plain Jane, we are all the same distance from the floor. We've all been given the Holy Spirit. What John is pointing to here is not an individualism which goes off and says, I can interpret what God is saying and nobody else need be involved. What he's saying here is we need each other. The Spirit of Christ resides in you and resides in each of us. And that leads me to really where I want to finish what I have to say to you today. We need to understand what it means to be people who are in Christ if we are to be in the world. It's such a challenging thing to understand as I started, where I started was this. We've got to understand who we are in Christ and then we can understand who we are in the world. And here is the fundamental truth that I began with, which is the fundamental truth that I want to end with. When God looks at us in Christ, we are forgiven. And when the world looks at us, do they see Christ in us? Our whole identity needs to be transformed. Far too often, we end up thinking the wrong way around. We think that who we are springs out of what we do. No, what we do springs out of who we are. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. In Christ, we are seated in heavenly places. In Christ, we are loved. In Christ, we are accepted. In Christ, we are redeemed. In Christ, we are made whole. In Christ, we are more than champions. Then we can stand in the world with confidence and proclaim the truth of who Christ is, whether they like us or not. Up until I was 30, my name was not Malcolm, it was stupid. I was never called anything else by my father. From the day I was born, my name was stupid. He would get me up in the morning and hit me and say, that's for when you do something stupid later, stupid. At the age of eight, I was told that it was my job to look after the house, so I had to cook and clean from then on. I wanted to die until I became a Christian. And I hated him. I hated all that my life had become. He used to leave tablets beside my bed and tell me to take them because the world would be a better place without me. Every single day of my life, I was told that I was stupid. And I believed it. I was told that I was worthless. I was told that I didn't matter. I was told that I would never amount to anything. Every single day day, day after day, week after week, month after month. I used to go to bed at night and say, God, please, if you're there, just let me die. Do any of you remember that little children's prayer which my mother taught me, I lay my body down to sleep. I pray to God my soul shall keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray that God my soul will take. I prayed it differently. I used to pray, I lay my body down to sleep. I pray that God my soul will keep. Please let me die before I wake. So when I became a Christian and I began to understand who I was in Christ, my life was transformed. I tell you, this is the heart of the issue of being. I am not a victim. I am a victor. I am not shaped by my past. I am shaped by the cross. I am not a product of negative words spoken over me all my life. I am a product of grace and mercy and life and forgiveness and hope. And so are you. 
when we understand what it means to be in Christ, to be a victor in Christ, to be an overcomer in Christ, to be born again and loved and accepted and held in Christ, then we begin to realize that we can be in the world what Christ wants us to be because we are living before an audience of one. Too often, and I'll pick this up the day after tomorrow, we think that the audience is only the world around us. It is not. Jesus Christ is our audience. He is the one that is watching. So when we be Christ in the world, when we are present to the world, what we want is to see the way he sees, to speak the way he speaks, to listen the way he listens, to behave the way he would behave, to do what he would do. Does that make sense? But we can only do that if we are first captivated by who he is, what he did, and what he said. It is as we live our being out in him that we're able to live out before the world with confidence, the presence of Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul, quoting one of the poets of his day, said this, in him we live and move and have our being. May God enable us to be in Christ before him. May you be reminded of that every day. And may we be able to be God in the world. His hands, his feet, his heart, his voice. Even if you stand alone, stand for him. Let's pray. Move us, Lord, beyond the Protestant work ethic that thinks we have to earn our salvation. Help us to realize that being present to you is a position that we hold. That it's an attitude that should shape us and that it is strengthened by obedience, commitment, and devotion. Thank you that in Christ we have been given grace. Thank you that in Christ we are chosen. Thank you that in Christ we are loved. Thank you that in Christ we are redeemed and forgiven. Thank you that in Christ we are justified. In Christ we are new creations. In Christ we are seated in heavenly places. In Christ all of your promises for us are yes and amen. Thank you that in Christ we are sanctified and made holy. That in Christ all our needs will be supplied. In Christ our hearts will be guarded and we will be given peace. In Christ we have eternal life. And in Christ, we are given an assurance that we will be raised from the dead. Help us to live today in Christ and in the world for Christ. Amen. See you tomorrow.